You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight's scripture, it comes from Hebrews 2. It's Hebrews 2, 11 through 18. It says this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. My name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Free City, and if you're with us for the first time, we're glad you're here. Uh, we are wrapping up Advent, and as uh, or we're still walking toward Advent. Christmas isn't here yet, uh, but as far as what we're doing in Hebrews, uh, we're going to end Hebrews chapter two, um, and then when we come back in the new year, we're going to be eventually picking back up in, in Lamentations. Uh, but I, I'm actually so excited uh, uh, for this passage. You know, and really the the picture is this, someone entering in to help. It was back uh, in the 1900s when I was in the, uh, I think the sixth grade. And that always, that blows my kids away. I was like, I was born in the 1900s. And they're like, did they have cars? I'm like, yes, but not cell phones. And they can't even believe that. I mean, I, you had to be at home to get a phone call. And the, the phones, they were on the wall. I mean, it blows their minds. But So back in the 1900s, um, it was one of the rare times in Oklahoma where it snowed enough that you could build a hairy snow fort. And so these are where uh, it's, there's not actually enough snow to build walls, but you collect all the snow from your yard and your driveway and your neighbor's yard, and it's mixed with the leaves. And so we built this hairy snow fort, and then we hunkered in, and then some kids from down the street, they came and they saw our hairy snow fort, and they said, do you want to have a snowball fight? And then you can't turn that kind of stuff down. I mean, you've got to like defend your hairy snow fort. But the problem was, we didn't have enough snow in the yard to still have a snowball fight because we used all the snow for the fort. So we had to go to their turf, and it was terrifying. And so we got there, and it was my best friend Brian and I, and we started the snowball fight, and we realized that it wasn't just two or three of them. Like They had like a whole gang. One of the kids' name, his name was Ben. He was a couple years older. Um, we uh, caught him smoking and had a tattletale on him, and so he remembered that. And years later, he depanced me in front of the girls' cross-country team. It was a long story, but <clears throat> deep, hard rivalry. 
And so if you know anything about snow in Oklahoma, it's not really snow. It kind of looks like snow, but it's actually ice. And so the ice war began, and man, it was, it was treacherous. We, didn't, we couldn't fall into our snowmatron. That's what we named our fort, snowmatron. It was awesome. And so it was just fighting all around. And then suddenly, man, we were losing. I took a snowball to the eye, and like my nose was kind of bleeding, and my eye hurt, and I wanted to cry, uh, but I didn't want to do that because I'd be de-pants then also. And I just remember thinking, man, it's never going to end. And then something happened. My sister's boyfriend, who was a year older, he was like in the 11th grade, drove by and wanted to join in the snowball fight. His name was Jeff Northcutt, now he's Dr. Northcutt. And so he joined in, and he was a high school football player. He was on his way to football practice, but he had time. And suddenly everything changed. We weren't in the fight alone by ourselves anymore. Everything changed. He didn't sit in his car and like yell instructions like throw harder, stop missing. He got into the fight with us. He entered in, and it changed everything. You know, that, that's, actually what, what, that's actually what Hebrews 2 is all about. Like someone not standing from afar and yelling, hey, do better. This is how you should act. This is what you should do. But God himself entering in to defeat an enemy that we could never defeat on our own. Like it's all right here before us. Like, like, actually, this is what Christmas is all about. Like, Christmas is about Jesus entering in. And so if you look at the text, let me just give you an overview of what we're going to see. Like, we're going to see just three things. <clears throat> and, and the longest is the first. But we're going to see that Jesus, like the whole point of Jesus is God entered in to stand with us. And so we're going to see that in verses 11 through 13. Jesus stands with you. And then we're going to see this. He entered in to die for us. Like if you look at verse 14 uh, and 15, you're going to see death mentioned over and over and over. Jesus entered in. God entered in. He entered in to die for us. And then finally, he entered in. And you're going to see this word several times. Help. He entered in to help. And it's going to give the picture of, of a priest. He entered in to make a way that we could interact with God again, that he could bridge the gap. But he came to help. Jesus entered in to stand with us. He entered in to die for us. And then he entered in to help us. But the whole point of Christmas the reason why we celebrate every year that we take time, because we don't know exactly when Jesus was born, but every year when we take time to look at the cosmos, to look at what happened, we have to remember that we don't have a God that stood from afar just to tell us how to do things. We had a God who stepped in to do it for us. And so let's look at verse 11. It says this, For he who sanctifies. And those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
And so the first thing is like we see the picture of the incarnation. Like the writer of Hebrews wants this church, this kind of war-torn church that is kind of feeling a little bit adrift in a pluralistic society who had never actually seen the person of Jesus. Like they didn't walk with him, but they're hearing about people who did walk with him and they're reading about what he did. The writer of Hebrews writes to them and says, listen, I want you to know Jesus entered in. And look, like Jesus entered in to stand with us. Look at verse 12. Like verse 12, it says that Jesus is here in the midst of us singing praises. And so what happens is we see it quoted from the Old Testament. Like he's going to say something really mysterious. Like he quotes it and then he applies it to their congregation. And he says this, wherever the gospel is preached among God's people. Wherever we sing worship to Jesus, Jesus stands with us. Like this is the mystery of it. This is why like I know there's a special manifestation of God's presence when God people come to worship. Like I, there's a special manifestation of it. Hebrews 2 wants to point that out in verse 12 that God stands with us to direct our singing. And so it goes on and like it's more mysterious than that. So start back at verse 11. And so 11, it says, for he who sanctifies, that's an important word we're going to deal with, and those who are sanctified have one, have one source. And so first it says sanctifies, it says it twice. Sanctification, it means to make holy or right. It means to change you. And so like, we weren't right. We lacked the ability to become right. And so Jesus entered in to make us right. And then if you look at the he and those of verse 11, like it, it, it says something really clear, but I want to point it out. Like it says this, it's really clear. It says, the he who makes right, that's Jesus. So Jesus entered in to make us right. And the those who are being made right it is us. Like I think sometimes we forget that. I mean, I think sometimes we think we, there's a little bit more of a partnership where like God kind of helps and he just gives us some information and then we put it all together and like in heaven we're going to give him a big high five like, man, we killed it down there. And that's not the picture we get of revelation at all. Like if you're in the Bible reading plan, you're wrapping up revelation. And I mean, I, I know, there, people, I, people love, like people ask me questions about revelation. Like, hey, what do you think that means? I'm like, man, I don't know what that means. But I know that all of God's people from every language, nation, and tongue at the end gather around the throne of God and they worship the lamb that was slain. And it says something so mysterious, from the foundation of the earth. The lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth. It's almost a picture of before creation happened, God in his omniscience knew what would happen. And as soon as Jesus said, I will redeem them, it was done sanctified. Jesus entered in to sanctify, to stand with us. You know, this is, this is actually a terrible example, but I mean, I was born in the 1900s, so I have to use it. In 1995, the movie Billy Madison came out, Adam Sandler. Um, if you haven't seen it, I don't know, I feel like you might understand me more. I probably watched it a hundred times if, if you see it. 
But it came out, and so, I mean, Billy, he, uh, his dad paid for him to get through school, and he's like, man, you're a loser, you need to get together. And he's like, no, I could do it. And so he goes back to school all the way. And so he's in the third grade, and he makes a best friend, Ernie. I don't know if you remember the cute kid with the, the haircut. Uh, and so he made a best friend, Ernie, and he was always hitting on his teacher, Veronica Vaughn, okay, it, right now, if you saw, okay. And so he's always hitting on her, and he's at the field trip, and Ernie like gets embarrassed because Ernie pees his pants. Like if you remember that, I mean, tragic moment. Like right now you're like, ah, ha, ha, ha. if you peed your pants, tragic moment. And so he's scared and all of a sudden Billy, his best friend, finds out. And so what does he do? He gets his pants wet and he says this of course to the friends who are like, oh, Billy, you peed your pants? He said, of course I peed my pants. Everyone my age pees their pants. It's the coolest. And then all the kids pee their pants. But like the whole point was he saw his friend like in the, the, the crosshairs of ridicule was upon him. And he said, I'll enter in. Now, I mean, you can't find anything else spiritual from Billy Madison, but take that. I mean, the picture is he looked at his friend and he says, I will stand with you, which leads us to verse 11, the end. He says, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus isn't ashamed to enter in and to stand. Listen, the, the message of Christmas, he's not confused. He's not confused about what you've done or what you will do. He's not confused about your motives. You see, sometimes when you do wrong things, you can kind of hide it with, oh, I didn't mean it like that. And like in that moment, you know you're lying. After a while, you might be able to tell yourself enough times that you think you might have actually meant it that way, but you didn't. Jesus wasn't confused about the brothers and sisters he was coming to stand with, and he chose to come and stand anyways. He is not ashamed of you. He entered in. Now, that's, that's where we ended last week. And just kind of this, because we, sons and daughters of God, we're not able to make ourselves presentable or holy enough on our own. The Son of God, Jesus, entered into humanity to stand with us in our place without condemnation for us. Read Romans 8. Without shame, proud to restore us back to the Father. And then we get to verse 12. And it says this, saying, and so this is where he starts to quote. And so what we have is we have at least two places that the writer Hebrews quotes. Some commentaries say three, but I kind of side with two. And so he's going to quote like three different sections from, I think, two places, maybe three. And so he wants to prove this. And so he's looking at Jesus and said, it's always been this story. It's always been like the hope for humanity, his God entering in to pull sin upon himself, to stand with us. And so he says, saying, and here he quotes, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. Psalms 22, verse 22. And then he goes on, and again, and so we shift, and now he's going to quote from Isaiah 8. Some commentaries think uh, he quotes from 2 Samuel 22, 3, because it says, and again, again. It says, and again, again. And get, okay, verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, behold, I and the children God has given me. And the idea is, we'll put my trust in him. And so the writer of Hebrews, he quotes from the Old Testament 
things that the first generation church would have known because these Hebrew people grew up studying the Old Testament. And so he's quoting and saying, remember, this is what God was always about. And so first, like if you have your, your Bibles or if you have your phone Bible, um, stop, get off Twitter and get on the phone Bible. You can go back to, 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 to Psalms 22. I think it's worth going back because as soon as they would have said this, they would have remembered, yeah, that's what Jesus, Psalms 22 verse 1, Jesus said that on the cross and there's so much in there that's about Jesus, but there's so much in there that's about us. Like, like first he quotes Psalms 22 where he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. But Jesus quoted Psalms 22 verse 1 from the cross when he said, my God, my God, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now I think instantly when Jesus quoted that, he was saying, Everything else in the psalm is actually about me and what you see happening right before you. And so li listen to what it is. So the, the first half of the psalm, you know, verses 1 through 21 in Psalms 22, it's pictured what happened in Jesus. And so look at it. Like verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoted by Jesus in Matthew 27. And then if you jump down in Psalms 22, you get to verse 6 and 8. And what it does is Jesus for being foretold that he'd be mocked by a jeering crowd around him. And so it says they surrounded him. And then jump down to verse 14 of Psalms 22. And we see Jesus pictured again in agony. It says this, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And so it's almost like at the cross, Jesus quoted that to say, now you see it all before you. But it doesn't stop there. Like the first century church, think about this, like this, these small Hebrew congregations of Christians gathering around who are familiar with the Old Testament in a, a growing, like a, 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 a culture around them that is growing hostile toward them. Nero's about to take office. Persecution is about to come. And they start to wane, like, man, maybe we don't have to say Jesus is God incarnate. Maybe we can say something less. That's what we looked at in the, the, the past weeks as we built up to this. And they just want to take him back and say, remember Psalms 22. Remember all that was foretold about him. Remember things like verses 16 through 18 where it says this. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Like a small band of believers, tempted to maybe just walk away or pull back from the exclusive claims of Christmas. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalms 22, and they would have thought of all that was there. How could that be anything but what we saw? See, Psalms 22, verses 1 through 21, I believe are all about Jesus, all pointing forward to his suffering upon the cross. But something changes at verse 22. 
See, at verse 22, where, where, he, where he quoted, where he started, where he says, I will sing of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. This is after the suffering has happened. And then it's because of the suffering that happens, there are now ramifications that we get. There are benefits that we get because Jesus entered in to stand with us. There is something that we now get. And just really fast, look at it in verse 23. See, because Jesus came and suffered, he now stands with us in the congregation, joining us and enabling us. And you see the words, to praise him and to stand in awe of God, verse 23. Or we could say it like this for verse 25, because Jesus came and suffered, and he now stands with us in the congregation, praising with us. And then verse 25, it says this, from you, Jesus, the suffering Messiah of God, comes my praise in the great congregation. See, Jesus came to stand with us, not just to make a person, not just to change you, but to make a people. A people who come together. And then look at verse 26. It says, The afflicted shall hear and be satisfied. Verse 27, it says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship. Because Jesus entered in to stand with, this is possible. And then verse 31, it ends the psalm talking about us. Look, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Writer Hebrews was very, very careful what he was quoting from, and he quoted right at the transition point to say, Jesus entered in, and now he has done it. We have something. He is now with us. And it even answers, like, so, so go back to Hebrews 2. And so go back, because he's going to quote other places. So Hebrews 2, like if we're going to ask the question, like how do we get into this God-praising congregation? He answers us with 2 Samuel 22, verse 3, or more specifically, I think, Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. He answers. And so what we see in verse 13 of Hebrews 2, he says this, And again, I will put my trust in him. And so we who have heard the good news of Christmas put our trust in Jesus. That's how you get in. And then he says again, again, so look at verse 13 again, again. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And so both of those, I, I think he's quoting because it comes back to back in Isaiah 18, 17 and 18. I'm sorry, Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. And so there's a little bit to unpack there, because like, if you look at Isaiah 8, they're, 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 it's in between two chapters that are very messianic. And so a lot of times at Christmas, you'll see Isaiah 9, you know, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Or you'll look at Isaiah 7, where it talks about the virgin shall be with child. And so two hugely pointing forward, but also historically reliable, like where they are, pointing at the person of Jesus in the second throw of the, of the prophecy. But right here in Isaiah 8, what we see in the, in, the, in the history of this, a little bit just to unpack. And so what you see is the Assyrian army is amassing outside Jerusalem. 
And what happens is the people of Israel, they had made an alliance with the, the army of Syria, and now they were trying to get Judah to join in. And so what Isaiah goes to King Ahaz, he says, listen, trust in God for deliverance. Don't make this man-made political alignment. Don't side with a man's army. Trust in God and trust in God alone. Well, that, that didn't seem very promising to King Ahaz. So he goes ahead and he makes the alliance with Syria to protect Israel from the Assyrians who were invading. And in that moment, God led Isaiah to make a physical prophecy. And so what he did was he named his two sons. And so this is probably during the the time of a siege. Two sons are born. And so the first son that he names, and this this is hard to say, he names him Maher Shalah Hashbaz which hopefully that kid got a nickname. I mean, could you imagine every time you were mad, Mahler Shalah Hashbaz. I mean, I mean like, are you calling like a whole family over? But that name, Mahler Shalah Hashbaz, it means, it means this. It means quickly plundered, swift to the spoils. And so his first son, he said, because you didn't trust in God, because you wouldn't put your hope, because you did what seemed right to you, based on the circumstance of your life, you pushed God away, the Assyrians will come quick to the spoils. Nothing will hold them back. And then he had a second son. And the second son, his name was easier to say, Shir Jashub. Not great, but it's much, much better. But Shir Jashub, it means a remnant will return. And and so it was a promise like this, like the Assyrian army, they are going to come, they are going to be quick to plunder, they're going to take everything, they will leave nothing. But the good news, a remnant will be saved, a remnant will return. And like, if you could picture this, If this is a visual prophecy that's happening right before him, you have Isaiah and he has a hand on both sons. And on one, it's quick to be plundered. Nothing will be left. Everything will be taken. And then it's, but a people will be saved. And you have Isaiah standing in between them, which Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves. And then you fast forward and you get to Jesus and his name means God saves. And so the picture is this, from a people who have been plundered, who everything has been taken, what stands between them and salvation is Jesus, God saves. Like the picture was laid out and the writer of Hebrews would have been very specific to bring these things up. What stands in the gap of total destruction and loss and redemption is the person of Jesus who entered in to stand with us. That is Christmas. That is, that is Christmas. So the first is Christmas is God entering in to stand with us. But then we get to verse 14. He doesn't just enter to stand. He enters in to die. Like in in verse 14 through 15, we are consumed with the idea of death. Three times in these two verses, death is mentioned. And so verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, which is a, a point to mortality, 
Like flesh and blood, that flesh and blood doesn't last. And so it says, since we share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. And so when it mentions flesh and blood, it should make us think of like our fragile bodies. Like think about all you do or all you should do to like maintain your health. I mean, some of you are like, man, I do a lot. Like, you count your steps. Some of you are like, man, if I had a step counter, I'd put it on my dog, you know? I mean, all that you do or all you should do, like, you, you, you try to eat. I mean, I just had the realization like a year and a half ago, it was a sad moment for me. Um, I started doing some intermittent fasting, and then that wasn't enough. And I had this moment, I was looking at Kinsey, and I was like, Kinsey, I think I've just entered in the time of my life where I'll always eat less and less. And she looked at me with sad eyes and said, that it sounds awful. But like all that you do, like eat or work out to maximize what you have, but one day it will be for nothing. Or, or you go to the doctor for yearly checkups to discover unseen threats, but one day the unseen will surface and it will one day be untreatable. Like, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. But basically, from about the age 25, you've been dying. And I know some of you are like, oh, I'm still on the upslope. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but from like the age 25, physiologically, you don't replace your dying cells as fast as they die off. Like, you're dying. When it says flesh and blood, Jesus entered in to death to partake of the same thing. And then it's going to name it, like verse 14 goes on. Look, it says, that though through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And so Jesus entered into our fragile state, but Jesus entered into our death to take back the power of death from Satan. Like the human experience, it's riddled with death. Like the Bible tells us why we ignored the voice of God. And listen to this, to do what seemed right to us. Like that's, that's Genesis 3. Like God gave us the whole garden and he said, just stay away from that tree. And Satan enters in. And then we just said, man, it seems good to me. And we see that phrase over and over, what seems right to us. And that's what leads us into sin all the time. It just seems right. We look at the evidence, and we, ah, it seems right to me. And so Jesus entered in. Like King Ahaz, it seemed right to align with Syria, but brought death to his people. We make damning alliances every single day. We chase the voice of health to slow death, but we can't stop it. We give our life to those kind of pursuits. We, we chase voices to distract ourselves from death, but it's always looming on the horizon over and over. Our choices are made by what seems right to me. You know, I mean, that, like mid, midlife crises, they're a real thing. I'm still planning mine. I'm not there yet. You know, and what it is, is all of a sudden you get to a place in your life and you're like, most of my life has been lived. What do I have to show from it? And to distract yourself from your pending death, to distract yourself from the downhill spiral of life, 
you, you know, you, you like buy a sailboat or something, which is crazy if you live in Kansas. We start to distract ourselves, the questions that haunt you, the selfishness that possesses you. And the reality is you can't stop death and Jesus entered in. You know, at best you maybe can slow it down with medical advances, but it's still coming. But Christmas is about Jesus entering into humanity humanity, and then taking on death to take it back. And so the New Testament is very clear. Death and life are now in the hands of Jesus. Death and life are now in the hands of Jesus. It's not that God didn't have control, but he came to take it back. Death and life are now solely in his hands. So when we fix our eyes upon Jesus, we're looking at the person who holds our life in their hand. And then verse 15, it goes on to spell it out just a little bit more plainly. It says, And so he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death. Like it's consuming. It's what leads to everything I already talked about. Like it's what leads to the midlife crisis, what leads to all these different things. It's what's making so many decisions for so many people right now. And so Jesus entered in so that through the fear of death, we would no longer be in that lifelong slavery. Like Jesus took it upon himself. So we wouldn't have to be controlled, enslaved, or drunk upon the avoidance of death. And if we read the New Testament, we get to like a 1 Corinthians 15, and death still remains. But the picture is so beautiful. 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking to believers who thought maybe Jesus was going to come back, but all of a sudden all of the people in their generation are dying off. And they're worried. And Paul steps in to say, listen, your bodies are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. They are corrupted. The corruptible must come off for you to put the incorruptible on. And then it goes on to say, now death, where is your sting? Christmas is God entering to stand with us. Christmas is God entering into death to free us from the enslaving fear of death. And Christmas is Jesus entering in to help. When I read this, just look at all the help words. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faithful. He might become the merciful and faithful high priest. In the service of God, mercy, faithfulness, service, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Like, did you see all the help words? Like verse 16, Jesus didn't enter in to help angels, but to help us. It says, helps. He helps. 
In Christmas, Jesus came to help. Verse 16, where it says he came to us, his brothers, to be merciful and faithful, priest in service to God. Merciful, faithful, priest in service. Those are helping words. He came to bridge a gap. A priest stands in the synagogue or in the temple to try to help sinful humanity get in touch with God. And now Jesus is all that we need, bridging, just like the picture of Isaiah. On one side, a son of everything that's stolen and everything that's taken, everything that's robbed from our alliances with humanity, our alliances to cheat death, our alliances to escape. But then Jesus, God saves, stands in between that and a redeemed people. Verse 18. Because Jesus became like us, suffered like us, endured temptation like us, He's able to help you. Help us. Help us who, who suffer. Help us who are afraid. Help us who fall into temptation. Like, think about your life. Think about you. When you think about you, like, do you see suffering and feel alone? Like when you think about your life and who you are is what mostly captures you are pictures of suffering that never seem and you just feel alone in the suffering like no one can understand. See, Jesus entered in. So the promises of like a Psalms 34 verse 17 through 18, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from all of their troubles for the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Or when you look at your life, or when you think about your life, do you see temptation after temptation, and do you just feel overwhelmed? Like it's the same temptations that keep coming up and you keep falling to the same lies and they never actually produce, but you keep giving yourself to them and they keep taking and you identify with Isaiah's son over here of the people who have been taken from quick to the plunder. Like because of Christmas, you are never left alone to carry life by yourself. Matthew 11, it says, Come to me, all who are labored and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or, or, or John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way. If you feel overwhelmed and you don't know, he says, just look at me. Or, or like a Hebrews 7.25 where it's going to go on and it's going to say, Jesus lives to make intercession for you. Not like a general thing, God, just help all those. They're crazy, help them. Where he says, God, minister and give the help that is demanded by my blood that was poured out. You have access to God the Father because Jesus' blood was poured out. He makes intercession for you. Or when you think about your life, do you see threat after threat, danger after danger, looking to steal from you around every corner, like pressing in upon you, pressing in upon your life is the thing that you would say most constant in the undertone of your life 
fear. If that's you, hear the message from the angels introducing Jesus. And the angels said to them, the shepherds in the field, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to men. At Christmas, Jesus entered in. At the cross, Jesus entered into death. And at hearing the gospel, Jesus can enter into your life. But just like Isaiah 8, you have to come to a place where you say, I trust him. I trust him beyond what seems right to me. That means I trust Jesus to be authoritative when I don't like it. That means I trust Jesus to be in control when it feels out of control. That means when there's a lot of like foes or danger coming at me or surrounding or enveloping my life, I can look to Jesus because he holds the keys. And he holds them all. He has beat sin, Satan, and death. He now holds the keys to the grave. So I can focus my attention to him and I can know what to go or where to be still because Jesus is the way. Upon hearing the gospel, have you said yes? Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, Lord, as we um, move to another picture of this, the picture of the table, and as we move to end out um, just a moment of coming together where you said the most incredible things. You say where the gospel is preached and where we sing praises to you, you stand in the congregation. And Lord, it actually makes sense to me. It actually makes sense when I talk to believers on the other side of the world, where I talk to my friend who planted a church in China, and there was like persecution, and they would risk to meet together. And as he worked with you know, pastors in China, they would risk to come together. It actually makes sense because they felt something special about the presence. And this says it's because Jesus stands among us. Lord, we see this as hollow and important that this is hollow ground. Nothing because of what we do, but only because you entered in. You came to stand with us. You came to die for us. You came to minister, to help. And the angel said, peace and goodwill to men. At the table, we celebrate all of that. We celebrate that Jesus has come. We celebrate and remember that Jesus came to taste death for us. That Jesus came to help us in a way we can never help ourselves. You know, 
when we come to the table, we actually taste. Like we actually taste the bread. We actually taste the wine. And it should remind us that Jesus actually tasted the fragile state of humanity. He got sick. He had fevers. He was hurt and injured at times. He felt alone. He had to defeat temptation with belief in the promises of God. He felt our humanity. And then he felt death. And then he felt the wrath of God because the the language is clear in Hebrews. It says propitiation. He had to take the wrath of God so we could have the hand of God. And so when we come to communion and when we come to the table, we remember that God entered in to taste. Christian, If you trust in Jesus, we invite you to join us in communion. The way we take communion now is we start with the wafer. And we take it. And as we taste it, we remember that God tasted humanity and then tasted death and then tasted wrath for the forgiveness of our sins. Christian, the body of Jesus broken for you. In the same way, we turn to the cup and we look at the wine that Jesus renamed the cup of the Passover to say, this is to remember his blood that purchased your life. Christian, the blood of Jesus poured out for you. When you're ready, join us and sing.